Have you ever met one of those people who just can't be stopped? It's like they're unstoppable. Yeah, I have. Me too. What's their mystique? Nothing stops these people. Don't stop. Welcome to Mission Unstoppable with Coach Frankie Picasso. You're about to meet some of the most amazing people. They've accomplished their goals despite insurmountable odds. They beat adversity, physical hardship, and traumatic events, and emerged triumphantly. They're people just like you and me, and they're winners. Are you unstoppable? Here's Frankie to show you how. Well, hello there, and welcome to another Mission Unstoppable Radio and now TV. Uh, today, we're going to go on a mission to learn how to become leaders in the game of life. Okay, sales, but I'm going to call it life, and I, I think you're going to see why. But just before I do that, I'm going to share something with you. I don't know if you guys can see this, but it says, all the best moms get to be grandmas. And yesterday, finally, I was able to post, yay, my eldest is having their firstborn, and I'm so excited. <laughs> okay, enough about me. So... When in this new economy, uh, more of us are going to be going to business by ourselves and entrepreneurs are now being born every second. And the old adage, a sucker is born every second is no longer the way a sales force looks at their clients or clientele. It's outdated and more relevant. It's just insulting. And my guest today, he wrote the book that defines how those sales play the game as leaders and it's titled Lead or sell, or get out of the way. And Ron Carr, the author, is my guest today. He is an international keynote speaker, revenue growth strategist, market leadership expert, author. Ron is the guy the CEOs call when they lose a huge deal or the competition's flying past them. There's no downturn in the economy, only a strategy Ron hasn't played yet. In fact, he's the MVP and the secret sauce all rolled into one. He's the master of creating value when under price pressure, competing in a very crowded space, and revolutionizing the way high-growth companies impact their markets. So Ron has managed to generate three-quarter of a billion dollars in incremental revenues for his clients. He's reached 200,000-plus people worldwide. He taps into 36-plus years of sales and leadership experience, and he has spoken on six continents, 20 countries worldwide. He's also the facilitator of the Chief Revenue Officer Mastermind Group and the past president of the National Speakers Association. His latest book was a CEO bestseller, and as I said, it's titled Lead, Sell, or Get Out of the Way. Please welcome Mr. Ron Carter, Mission Unstoppable. Hi, Ron. How are you? <laughs> Great, Frankie. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Thank you. You know, this was a fabulous book. I have to tell you, I really, really enjoyed reading it. And Thanks. I think um, probably there's two things that really impressed me the most. One was the homage to your mom, because I think that was really beautiful. Miriam Carr. Right. And the other was you said there's no room for followers but plenty for people who are willing to create outcomes that others have not imagined. I love that. I think that my whole life has been built around that. So it's pretty exciting to finally hear that come out of the mouth of somebody else. So thank you for that. No, my pleasure. 36 plus years in this game. Um, kind of when you start measuring your life in decades, you start realizing something. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, on Mission Unstoppable, I like to, um, you know, we weren't all just born right here, this precipice where we find you. Uh, you were a little boy. And, and so let's just go back to what, your, what the dynamic was like in your household when you were young. And, and you know, who was, what was Ron, what was he playing with? And what was he thinking about becoming when he was going to become a grown-up? Oh, God. Um, I don't remember exactly. I think I had a dream to become a salesperson. I don't know where that came from. I, I had this little picture of me when I was about three years old with a, with a phone in my hand. And when I was inducted as president of NSA, we put the picture up as me making my first sales call. That's hilarious. Oh, my um, gosh. But, you know, I, 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 I got my training really and my, uh, ex, my experience at an early age from my mother because she was really a woman ahead of her time. She um, ran away from home in, in, when they were living in Palestine, and she joined the army, and she was underage, and she had to negotiate with her father to let her do that. And finally, he relented. So she was in two militaries. She was in the British Army in World War II, and then she uh, commanded a battalion of 2,000 women in the War of Independence for Israel. Then she came to the U.S. and worked at the U.N. and went to NYU and became a, a world-renowned economist where leaders, you know, in the free world, President Reagan relied on her testimony to make key decisions. And I would see her grow, you know, and, and as a woman, I, I would call her a woman ahead of her time. Absolutely. I would call her a woman. But she always had the bias that she had to deal with, yeah. you know, no matter how accomplished you were. And that's why everything that's going on today with women, I have such a, a soft spot in my heart for that because I do, be, I do believe in equality. We have to do a better job of that. But um, she, she reminded me of the story that in the 1960s, she was applying for this job at some kind of a bank. And the gentleman um, said that this is no place for a woman. And she didn't get the job. Now, fast forward about 20 years later, she's a senior vice president of Chase Manhattan Bank. She's at an executive cocktail party. And she recognizes the guy. And he happens to be two rungs below her in the org chart. <laughs> and so she goes up to him. And she goes, hey, do you remember me? And he goes, not exactly. And she goes, well, my name is Miriam Carr. And I don't know if you remember, but you interviewed me and you told me that this was not a place for a woman. And I just wanted to thank you. And then she smiled and walked away. <laughs> and that was like, you know, you know, her getting back at the guy. But it, it was, um, it really was a challenge because no matter, and it's not just for women. I mean, no matter how good you are today, um, companies are always reinventing themselves and we always have to be relevant. And the one thing she always did was she stayed relevant. So when the bank was going through a reorg, she was trying to figure out, you know, what's my next game? Because how can I stay relevant to the bank? And she realized that the third world countries at that time had a huge amount of debt with the banks. And the banks wanted to get it off the bottom line. So she invented a counter trade group. But she'd go to countries like Peru to get products out. She traded with China, whoever. And eventually money would exchange. And for every $3 a, company, a country exported, one dollar go to the bottom line of the bank and start wiping off the debts, which became invaluable to them. And that taught me the lesson of how to stay relevant. And that no matter what you did today, tomorrow's a different story and you gotta keep recreating yourself and being relevant. And I think that's the biggest issue that salespeople face today because they're not staying relevant. They're working on old information, they're not staying on top of the customer needs, and then they wanna know why they're being beaten down a price or competition's coming in and stealing the market share. Well, I really like the idea. Well, I love the stories about your mom, and I, I love, especially love how innovative she was with, with you know, the with the third world countries and that because it's 
very exciting. Uh, my mom was also an economist, so it was pretty, yeah. it was pretty exciting. Yeah. Um, the, the idea of staying relevant and the idea of how, as I said at the beginning, you know, sales guys, ah, oh, suckers born every minute, you know, we're going to get them, right? The, right. That, that guy's gone. You know, the huckster, the, yeah. uh, he's supposed to be gone. He's supposed to be gone in, in today's world. We don't, you know, we're not supposed to uh, think in that way. And I don't think you're going to get very far selling that way. I mean, you might hit him once, but you're never going to get him twice. Sure. I mean, you know, I, when I do my keynotes, I, I ask the audience, hey, raise your hands if you can't wait to be sold something by the next salesperson and no one raises a hand. And then I said, now, if you have to make a really big buying decision and you would value the help of someone to help you make the right decision, raise your hand and all the hands go up. And that's really been the change since, let's say, 1980 um, when I uh, was in sales to today. You know, pre-internet, we had to sell features. We had to sell everything about a product because they didn't know about the products. But today, by the time a salesperson speaks to somebody on the phone or visits them in the office, they already know about your products. They looked you up on the internet. And if all you're doing is having the same conversation with what they know, you're not getting their attention. You know, Frankie, we, one of the things I, I share with salespeople is you have to look at yourself as being an interruption. Even if I call an existing client who loves me, I'm, in, I'm interrupting the day. Mm-hmm. And if we're going to someone's office to try and sell something, I've, I've known this before the neuroscience comes out, but neuroscience now actually gives us the reason why it happens. We're an interruption of someone's day, so automatically stress goes up. Because A, we're an interruption, and B, they're trying to avoid buying something they don't necessarily need. Our job as a sales executive is to create the right environment for someone to want to talk to us. So we have to reduce that cortisol and raise the oxytocin, which is the chemical of trust. And how do we get someone to talk to us? Well, it's not by talking about yourself. It's not by talking about your company. It's about asking them about where they're trying to go and the challenges that they're facing. And once you start doing that, you're changing the dynamic where the stress goes down. They start giving the information that you need so that you can become powerful in your sales approach. You just said something very important. So if you're listening, and I hope that you are, and there's a difference, as you said, between hearing something right. and listening to something. And I hope that you are listening. So I'm going to ask you, what three things, Ron, can I do during this interview that's going to help make your day? Help my day? Yeah. Let's oh, I love that. <laughs> well, number one is, 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 is we do a great interview so we give value to people because that's really what I'm about. And I think you are too. Is how do we be of service to our audiences to make them better people, what they do day in and day out, because there's no greater satisfaction. From there, all the business will come. If we can help people become successful, success comes to us automatically. Mm-hmm. Um, number two, I guess, you know, if people like what they hear and they buy the book, lead, sell it, get out of the way, I think it's going to be a tremendous investment for them on Amazon where they can really learn. And if someone needs the assistance of us to come in and help them, that'd be great too. But most importantly, what can they get out of this session in this one hour that they're giving us their invaluable time so they can go and apply it and increase the level of success? I know that there's, that there's a number of people who are listening right now who really, they're young and they're hungry and they want to become salespeople and they want to become leaders. And this is how they're going to do it by applying the knowledge that you're going to read in this book. It's simple. It's not difficult. It's just yeah. a step-by-step plan. And I wish I knew it when I was younger. You know, I, my, I wanted to become a medical device sales rep and I couldn't get a job to save my life because they all kept saying, you don't have experience. And I kept saying, well, wait a minute, you're not born with it, so I have to get it somewhere. 
Now, a lot of medical device companies are my clients. Right. Yeah. Pretty yeah. funny. Yeah, but, exactly. <laughs> but if I ran the interview the way I teach people how to sell themselves today, I probably could have done a better job of landing one of those jobs when I was younger. There you go. And there's so much great stuff in here. I'm going to, I'm going to, here's, this is one of my favorite ones. <laughs> Leaders don't puke. Right. Now, puke is an acronym, but let's talk about that for a moment. Because I think you talked about it a little bit early, like, you know. Right. So puke stands for people who utter knowledge about everything. And, um, you know, I've co- I'm coaching people today and I ask, what's your goal for the call? And they say to let them know what we're doing. I said, no, that's not your goal. I know a lot of salespeople that give their customers PhD in what they do and they still don't get the business. That's puking about everything that you know. And many times when you do that, you're self-focused, you're not customer-focused. You're talking about everything you have to offer, which may be a small percentage of that is of real importance to the customer. So if we become more customer-focused, find out where it is they're trying to go and what their biggest challenges are, and then present the one or two things we have to offer in context to what they just told us, that's when it's going to land with value. That's when we're going to get their attention. And that's where we're going to increase our chances that they'll buy from us. So what I'm hearing is that they don't care about what you're selling. They care about how it's going to affect them, what you can do for them, and, right. and, and what of their issues are you going to solve. Right. And the other thing that a big mistake that salespeople make is they lead with the how versus the what. The how is their products and services. It doesn't mean anything to anybody. You got to lead with the outcomes. What are the results? So you find out what someone's trying to achieve, you establish those outcomes, then you present the how and how you're going to generate those outcomes for them. That's the psychological process you need to use and you'll get their attention. Lead with the what. If you lead with the how, you're just a commodity at that point. You know, I walked into a into a, a, an automobile sales place the other day. I'm looking for a new car. And the gentleman says, you know, this is one of my favorite cars. Why do I care? It's your exactly. favorite car. It's not my favorite car. <laughs> I don't even like the look of it. So why, why would I care? Why would you say that to me? And, and you know, we, we kind of bring that on to ourselves in restaurants. And I do it myself. When we go to order and the waiter goes, what can I do for you? So what do you recommend? I mean, what kind of question is that? I'd like to hear a way to say, well, it depends. What are you in the mood for? What are you looking to taste tonight? What, what you ask me that question, you can help me whittle down to the one, two, or three things on the menu that will probably best speak to that. Like, what's the best restaurant you ever ate at? Okay. So now we know where your palate's at. Now I can ask you. Exactly. exactly. You don't know anything about us. And so that's, that's your job is to find out about your customer. So let me ask you, if, if I don't know anything about you, and it doesn't really matter what I'm selling because right. it's, it's going to be the same methodology across the board, right? right. It doesn't, I need to know who you are and right. what it is I can do for you. Yep. That's it, really. It's an, it's, and be a little bit creative. So where does the creativity come in? Because you are a problem solver, mm-hmm. a strategist. So, you know, everybody can have the same idea, but you need to up that idea in order to get their attention. So how, how do you encourage or, or show people or challenge them to become more creative? In, in, usually in during a, a role play because that's the best learning opportunity. So when we do keynotes, we'll actually have two people come on stage. We'll have them just do a role play they want, stop it after 20 seconds. I'll take the person playing the sales executive to the side, ask him or her just to start it again, but just start it with this question. 
And what happens is a transformation takes place and they become the heroes because just by changing the question, they actually get into a different conversation. So I'll give you a case study. Um, a medical device company had a best-in-class machine for ear, nose, and throat surgeons. Uh, it was rated best by all the trademarks, but they couldn't sell it because the largest competitor in the business re-engineered it and gave it away for free, forcing them and, and the competitor to make money on the disposables. So they're looking for a keynote speaker, and I was up against some pretty stiff competition. So to separate myself, you know, I decided to practice what I preached. And I said, well, I understand you want a keynote speaker, but what are you looking to achieve? And they start telling me about this issue with the uh, competitive threat. And I said, that sounds like a really uh, important scenario. He goes, yeah. I said, well, this probably is more than a phone call. You know, if you'll pay my way, I'll give you some time. Let me come down and meet with you in person. So I flew down to Jacksonville. And, you know, I asked them, what's the strategic intent for the meeting? What are you trying to do? And they got deeper into this issue about not being able to sell the machine and they had $8 million of capital equipment out there. Plus, it just went public, the value of $98 million, and they're having a lot of shareholder issues. And I said, well, look, you know, a keynote is only going to motivate people and make them feel good with some extended outcomes after that. But what you really need is a change in behavior. So maybe what I need to do is go into the field. Let me work with the sales reps. Let me change the conversation, see what the results are, then come to your national sales meeting. I could do an in-depth training program, but I can also do that closing keynote you want. So I went in the field, and uh, the reps were selling to the surgeons and, and, and the hospital admins the same thing. Here's the machine, look at the features, blah, blah, blah. I changed the conversation. I said to the surgeon, what are you trying to achieve this year? What are your challenges? He goes, oh, my God, you know, insurance is paying us less. You know, I have less, less revenue coming in. I said, what are you looking to do? I need to improved by a million dollars. I said, well, how are you going to do that? He goes, well, we can only operate certain times, you know, because we have to take space in the operating room. My challenge is how do I put more procedures through? How can I handle more patients? And I said, so now I started selling the product. I said, you know, this product has proven to take seven minutes off a procedure. He goes, right. How many more procedures can you fit in a year if you use this product? He goes, oh my God. And I went to the hospital. I mean, it had the same conversation. They were having the same issue. So the issue was not selling the machine. The issue was helping these people have better velocity, have more throughput, so they can put more cases through and make more money to make up for the losses of the insurance. But the reps started saying, oh, my God, you know, look at this new conversation he's having. So they were ready for me when I came to the national sales meeting. And we, we shared the template with them. We had them, you know, practice it. And within four months, they had $8 million brought back to the bottom line. Within two years, the major competitor left that space. And in a few years, they sold that company for 10x wow. billion dollars. So those are the kind of results that you can literally achieve just by repositioning yourself in the marketplace and changing your conversation. Well, you, you say in the book that, that very few times is anything you know, major sold on, on price. Like right. You're not going to get into a price war and, and lower your price and lower your price and lower your price till you have nothing. It, it's not about price. Yeah. Well, look, Sometimes price, it's does about price, in, <laughs> price does come into the issue, but you can't lead with price. You know, people have to realize that purchasing agents go through the same training by people like me, you know, as salespeople. And, uh, you know, and I had a, a really good mentor. His name was Bill Brooks. He passed away. He was a really pro in, in this game. And he wrote a book, you're working too hard to make a sale. And he interviewed 6,000 buyers and they said, why do you always beat up people on price? And the answer from all the industries that he interviewed was simple. They all come in saying the same features and after a while, it seems the same. 
Yeah. So how do I differentiate them by price? Well, what that says to me is, and, I, and this is one of the components I talk in my keynotes, you got to stop competing and start creating. And what I mean by that is stop worrying about the competitor, stop worrying about their features, stop worrying about the price. Find out where someone's trying to go. Find out what gaps they still have and start solving those gaps. Competition will take care of themselves at that point. And that's what happened with that medical device. Yeah. I was up against a speaker who's a good friend of mine, but he had 60 books written at that time. He was on my board of directors when I was president. I shared the story with him and he laughs. It's a well-known name. But, you know, he was pitching a keynote. I was not pitching a keynote. I was pitching a solution to an $8 million problem. So I was filling a gap at the same time as providing a service they wanted, which was a speech. And that's why I got the business and I got it in multiples of what a keynote would have been because of the field travel and so forth. So the best advice I can give to anybody else, you're going into a sales call, you want to influence, influence somebody. Look, this is not just corporate sales. This is real estate, professional services, entrepreneurs, even executives talking to employees or talking to your significant other. Anytime you want to influence somebody to do something, start the conversation about where they're trying to go and what the challenges are and fill those gaps. You do that, you'll separate yourself from the competition. That's what you, you call an integrated dialogue. Yes, and I learned that from my mother. Nice, nice. You, okay, so you're establishing contacts because right. you, you talk about just have a lot of people just have one contact or two contacts, and you know if they go away, you're kind of screwed. And so you need to infiltrate an organization or infiltrate or even like you use um, LinkedIn or, or whatever tools you want to use to to engage with people and and make more uh, meaningful contacts. We have right. ABC, you know, there, but there's other ways, obviously, of doing that. So if, if you're new to the game, um, how do I get to speak to the people that I need to speak to higher up in the echelon? Or do I? So, yeah, you do need to go up. Not everybody has to go to the CEO, but you need to go as high level as possible. You have to find out who's involved in the decision process. It's not just the buyer. In many cases, the buyer is just doing their job of assembling the quotes and everything else. But if it's, if it's, a, if it's a, an industrial sale, you got to speak to the plant manager. you got to speak to the users who are going to be using your, equip, your equipment and find out as much information as you can. And, and the, at the end of the day, remember one thing. The vote on whether to buy from you or not is not happening while you're there. It's happening when you're not there. So they're going to talk to everybody involved in the decision. Our job is to minimize as many no's as possible. So at the end of the day, when the vote's taken, we win. Right. An example that I can give is I was brought in by a uh, a, uh, a a manufacturer, and they were uh, rep- they were selling this product to a, to a manufacturing company. It was a five million dollars supply agreement, and the negotiator for the customer did not appreciate the high price that they were being charged. And they said, "You better watch out because next year when we negotiate, we're going to find a qualified buyer for lower price." So they called him up two months before the contract ended and said, you better lower your price because we got somebody else qualified. So the client brings me in, what do we do? I said, when was the last time you visited your customer's plants? He goes, oh my God, it's been at least a year. Let's mobilize the sales force. Let's go into every plant and just talk to as many people as we can. So one person walks into a plant. As soon as he opens the door, he trips over a box and falls on a concrete floor. The workers immediately come up. They, they pick him up and they dust him up. Said, you okay? And he goes, yes, but what was that thing? He goes, oh, that piece of, you know what? That's something they're trying to force us to use, but it doesn't work. That supposedly was the qualified product. So when we find that out, obviously it changes our position. 
So the point is you need to talk to as many people, people that use it, people that evaluate it, people that are making the economic decision, people that you know are comparing it to everything else, because you'll find a whole aggregate of information that will allow you to tailor your proposal in such a way that will be customized, and you'll be addressing all those people's needs when the vote's taken. You'll have as many people as you need on your side. That's brilliant. I love it. So what? I'm sure you've come up against this before. You go into an organization, they want you to, you know, give them some solutions, help us out. And then that you get the, no, we always do it this way. The way my dad did it, it's the way we're going to do it. We always do it this way. So they kind of want to go somewhere, but they just can't envision your vision or they can't imagine doing things a different way. Yeah. And part of it is that um, I blame leadership for that. Um, there was a... Uh, a company, a big medical company, two medical companies that merged in the radio, radiology field. And um, the, uh, the bigger company's name became the name of the enterprise, but the smaller company's execs took over. So there was dissension between the two sales teams. So they're having the first combined sales meeting, 500 people in Las Vegas. They invited me to speak and do some breakouts. And then about two months later, the VP in charge of the $2 billion portfolio said, why don't you come down? and meet my executive team, we want to take this deeper and bring a PowerPoint and your capabilities. So I started with the PowerPoint and I started talking about, you know, how you need value-add selling, and he said, stop. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. He goes to the key execs. If he talks about value-add selling, what am I, what are, what's everybody going to do? Thumbs down. I said, okay, you need to do key account selling. Same thing, stop, thumbs down. Did a third one. Finally, I gave up and I said, okay, look, you say you need these things, but yet you're putting your thumbs down. What am I missing? I closed the PowerPoint, and I learned the most invaluable lesson at that time. This was in 2000. He said, Ron, let me share with you. I'm as guilty as every other VP that hires you guys as speakers. Because you come in, and do we ever follow through with what you say? No. no. You become the flavor of the month. I can't afford that right now. I got a high-stakes merger, $2 billion dollars. I need to unify these two cultures into one selling process. And there's a good book out there. It's called The Titan Principle. That's a formal book that I wrote. And he goes, you know what? It's pretty damn good. He goes, I want to use that as a unifying force to bring these two cultures together. And so what I realized, what he was hiring me for is not to speak. He was not hiring me because of my good looks. He thought that the process was so good that he can use that as unifying leverage to bring the two cultures together so he can achieve the end result that he wanted. And so we have to understand what really people's motivations are mm-hmm. so that we can, you know, talk to those motivations and, and, and bring in context where they just told us a way and how they can achieve those end results. So he's the one guy that got it. He's the one guy that said, if we're going to bring you in and spend all this money, because there's a lot of money they spent over 18 months, we better start following it. So tell us how you're going to do that. And then he was smart. He said, okay, instead of me telling you, why don't you tell me? You already told me what your, what your plan was. He goes, okay, we've got to bring you to Chicago. We've got to bring the whole management team in. But here's the deal. I don't want you to speak the whole time. <laughs> I said, okay. He goes, these are smart people. Give them, give them a module to them, break them out, and then let them uh, talk about what they process. So the interesting thing, Frankie, I always did all the talking, even in two-day sessions. This became a, a, a novel idea for me. Come in with four modules over two days, give them a half hour, break them out into two-hour conversation groups, come back, 
process, let them talk about what they came up with. They're coming into self-awareness and different issues. At the end of the day, the evaluation's best speaker we ever had. <laughs> and so what I learned is it's not so much what I say, it's a level of engagement that we also do. No different than what we're teaching salespeople, engage your customers about what's important to them. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Oh, my gosh. So we're engaging, we're engaging our customers. We're being innovative and creative, even if we're just sitting there with our mouth shut. Right. That's the hardest thing too. <laughs> yeah, I bet it was. Um, now, belief. You know, having a belief as a coach, I always say that I hold the beliefs of my clients until they can believe it themselves because I believe in them. And once they believe in themselves, that's where they take off. And, and so in, as a salesperson, the belief that they have is that they can do this. Nothing's too big. Yeah, you need confidence. One of my uh, colleagues, Mark Hunter, just did a thing on LinkedIn on confidence. It was an eight-second video, and it got so many um, interactions about that. You know the old saying, you need to have confidence, and if you don't fake it until you make it. Yeah. But um, it goes beyond that. I think it goes a little deeper. So um, I did a lot of work for this, multi- for this multinational chemical manufacturer with different divisions. In one division, they created a reagent that basically cut in half the cost of mining copper. And they saved the copper mines from going out of business in the 80s. And in the 90s, you know, when, when you come up with a new product, you sales go like this, then other competitors see there's money there, so they re-engineer, and then your sales level off. Well, that's where they were at the time they got a hold of me. And the largest consumer of that type of product, the biggest mine in the world, was going out for bids 18 months later. And so they brought me in to sit down with the key execs and says, you know, how do we win the bid? It's always price versus, um, you know, three-year supply agreement of price. So the first question I asked him was, what do you want for my intervention? And they said, well, we want to win the bid. I said, that wasn't the question. If you can take a blank piece of paper and create a vision of what you really want without the baggage from the past, what would it look like? Create your destiny. All of a sudden, the passion came out. Well, why do we have to bid? We started that. We, we created this phenomenal product. I said, so what do you want? A negotiated agreement. I said, great. How long? 10 years of life for the patents. I said, okay, for how much? You got 25% of the demand. They go 50. I said, that's all? 75%. Let me repeat what you just said. You want a negotiated agreement, 10 years for 75% of the demand. They said, yes. And I looked at them. I said, you can really do this, but you have to understand it takes a different set of actions to get that result than it does to win a bid. And then they asked me the fateful question. Well, how are we going to do that? (laughs) My answer was, I have no clue. You're honest. And they looked at me like, what are you talking about? I said, look, we'll figure this out. But I know in my deep heart, my intuition, that you're not even doing one-tenth of what I'm going to suggest you do. And I have the confidence knowing that if you do what I'm going to suggest we do, you're going to get close to that result. I can't guarantee it, but we'll get closer. Well, behold, in 18 months, they, uh, we, we, we repositioned them. We realized that you know, a mine can't uh, make profit on price because it's controlled by the exchange. So it's by productivity. Caterpillar had a man on site, truck breaks down, they fix it immediately. We convinced them to put a man on site for the reagent. We added all kinds of value add that we can do to make the plant run more efficiently. We coined it a mine site services program, trademark. When the bid came out, that was a big part. The other multinational said, what's it about? They didn't know. They gave them permission to pull the bid back and they negotiated a first ever in that industry, a $200 million contract for 10 years. Wow. 
That's incredible. And you, you talk a lot in the book. <laughs> well, maybe not a lot, but is it legal? There, there, there's this, you know, you can do whatever you want as long as it's legal kind of thing. Right. Um, are there so many people doing illegal things that you have to mention that? No, I do it out of protection because when okay. I'm saying that in the book, what I'm saying is, you know, you should find a coach. And a coach, if you work them properly, will give you the information you need to navigate the waters. I'm saying legal information. I'm not suggesting anybody go in and bribe somebody to get an illegal operation. Gotcha. That, that information, that's what I'm referring to. Okay. Okay. Um, so we, we, we have these beautiful conversations, and we're asking lots of questions because that's what coaches do. And I guess that's what salespeople need to do now is ask questions to find out, you know, what, what's happening. The positioning. You talk about positioning, making that impression, that first impression right. of yourself um, and building alliances and asking good questions. We talked about um, the value proposition. Mm-hmm. The value proposition comes out of the answers of the questions. Sure. So I'll give you an example. A, um, a well-known financial services company, it would take their advisors five sales calls to get a new investor on board. And they wanted to reduce that sales cycle. So I traveled look, in this in this type of product, they were knocking on doors of retirees. So I went out with a couple of sales execs in different parts of the country. And they were taught the relationship selling process. Go in someone's home, look at the picture, say, Oh, those are your kids, are they grandkids? Oh, three girls, two boys, so nice. Oh, you're a Bears fan, great. Tell me, wasn't that a bad game? And I looked at my watch, and it was for 15 minutes. And I can see the eyes of the retirees are being very polite, but they're saying, what are you doing in my house? So I said, let's change this a little bit. Do the personal connection for two minutes. Limit it to two minutes. And say, look, I know your time is really valuable. I just want to ask you a really important question, if you don't mind. And they'd say, what is it? And they said, look, I'm not here to talk to you about stocks and bonds. What I'm really here is to ask you this question. When it comes to your future, what are the three things you need your money to provide you with? And when we asked that question, this is what happened. If you look at my eyes, as soon as that question was asked, they all went like this. And at that moment, that's when there was a change in the brain. It was no longer self-focused. And they started thinking about it, that this person repositioned themselves as being a trusted advisor because they immediately started giving them information that most salespeople would die to get. Mm-hmm. And so if you can get that information fast and then start, start talking about how you can help them get there, you've just repositioned yourself in their minds. And we got that sales cycle down from five calls to three calls. Imagine how much business an advisor can do now. It only takes them three calls to close a new investor. As a matter of fact, when I was in there in the headquarters, they had a class in there, you know, of uh, advisors in 10 years or four to seven years. So what do you do in one hour with them? I said, great. So I went down to the one hour on this process. Uh, we're all staying in the same hotel. One advisor called me in my room at 11 o'clock at night. He goes, I'm so sorry to bother you, but I got to share this with you. He goes, okay. I was so intrigued with what you said. I'm dealing with two um, uh, widows. And I couldn't get them to pull the trigger yet. And they all had six figures to invest. And I called both of them up. I've been dealing with both of them about six months. And I called both of them up and I said, you know, I have to apologize for you. I was having the wrong conversation. I forgot to ask you the most important question. And he would ask that one question. And he got into a totally different conversation. One little agreed to to verbally commit the business to him that night. And one agreed to see him again. That's how powerful this process is. 
So we're engaging and, and we're, we're making and establishing relationships with people based because but the right, but the right relationships, right? People don't have to. People have enough friends, right? They don't need to talk about the social lives and everything. They don't even have the time. They need to know how are you going to help me, and especially now, there are a lot of great experts like Anna Liotta, um, who's in, who's going to be the president of NSA in a couple of years, who talks about different generations and and the millennials. And I heard her giving a speech recently. And she says, you know, millennials are not baby boomers. You know, baby boomers are into titles, into prestige. Millennials aren't, you know, and they don't have the time. They just want you to tell them immediately, how are you going to help them? So if you go into a millennial's office and start trying to socialize and build a relationship like you did to an executive who's 60 years old, it's not going to work the same way. No, they're all going to be millionaires by the time they're 25. (laughs) That's what they all tell me anyway. Exactly. (laughs) I like it. So you've established... Now we're establishing a resource proclamation. We're saying mm-hmm. who we are. What do we do? This is what I, this is who I am. And, and, and it's got to be outcome based, not about products. And you've changed yours several times since I've read your book, your bios, your everything. It's, it, it, you know, it changes when you change as yeah, you evolve. Well, we all evolve. And I think your, your resource proclamation or your value proposition is going to change as you see the results that you're providing for clients over the years. And it's going to allow you to um, say with more confidence and specifically uh, how you can help someone increase their competitive advantage, what it is that you're going to help them succeed with. So, yes, it does evolve. Is that the same as your elevator speech? Who am I? The resource proclamation, sure. Yeah, but yeah. Um, but it, it's got to be outcome-based. And, and like anything else, an, an elevator speech, a voicemail on a, on, on a phone, people do the wrong message because they have the wrong goal. We all, we, when we're leaving a voicemail, for example, we have in, the, in our mindset, we want to sell them. So we start leaving too much information trying to sell in the voicemail, and that's not going to get them to call you back. It's got to be something that's intriguing where they want to say, tell me more. So if you take that uh, radiology company that I was working with, uh, they were at a time when they're going from film to film, filmless, selling systems to hospitals so you don't have to carry all those big x-rays. And uh, one of the regional managers said, well, I never get my, my, uh, voicemails returned from the radiology managers. So what do you say? Typical voicemail. Hi, my name is so-and-so. I'm a regional manager for so-and-so, and I want to talk to you about this. Well, it's all self-focused. I said, what's the biggest issue that radiology managers have? They get being woken up at night because of lost x-rays. Simple. Here's what you just do. Hi, my name is so-and-so. If you're tired of being woken up in the middle of the night because of lost x-rays, we need to talk. Please give me a call. Her return call rate shot up to 60%. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, yeah, because people are calling and they're in, it's all about them, what they want. I didn't ask you to call me. I didn't say I had to, I get, I get, I must get 20. I want to clean your ducks tonight calls. And, and, and think about this. Um, let's suppose that, you know, I'm, I'm calling you with some kind of computer equipment for your radio show, you know, and, and, and then I say, Hey, Frankie, you know, my name is Ron Carr and I want to speak to you about the screens that you're using in your radio show. Well, first of all, you're listening to that message when you got 10 other messages and you don't have time to listen to the messages. So I'm talking about screen, the product all of a sudden. You're saying, got a screen, no problem. Click, you hang up. Now, if I left some kind of a message about how I can help you attract more listeners, you're probably going to call me back. Yeah, or sponsors or something. Exactly. (laughs) Absolutely, for sure. Yeah, I would. And and I'm just going to take this back a little bit because it kind of goes back to um, you saying in the book, talk to people as if they're the president, that their time has value. 
Right. And, and you're not going to go with all the, how was the weather? You know, miss, how, uh, and I'm going to talk about who he is now, but you're going to say, okay, how can I maximize my time with this guy? Let him know that I'm there for him. I have something that I really think he could benefit from. Um, so I have to let him know what I think is what his needs and, or I have to ask him what his needs are because really, you know, cause we can't assume, can we, what, that we know who he is. Yeah, so I get into arguments with some professional sales reps. Well, we should do the research up front and have that information. I said, yes, you should, but you still ask those questions because it means more coming out of their mouth than if you're saying it, number one, and they're engaged. And they may say it a little differently than you think it was. So you still need to ask those questions. People say, well, if I'm speaking to a CEO, I don't know how to have a conversation with a CEO. Really? Why? Because he's not a CEO? He doesn't need to come across as a peer. And as a peer, what would he do? You say, hey, Bob, tell me what you're trying to achieve this year. Tell me what your biggest challenge is. And a great question for the CEO, what's the legacy you want to leave behind? Because they all want to leave a legacy. Right. Find out what's motivating them, then present what you have, and you'll probably get their attention. Now, in many cases, you're talking to that kind of a high-level position. They're not necessarily going to make the deal for you. But what you want them to do is refer you downward. But when they refer you downward, those other people are going to listen to you. Yeah, they're going to go, Ron, make it happen. Right. <laughs> I love it. Okay. And that's the thing. You know, a lot of times we spend too much time with the person who's not the decision maker. Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, it's like one of the things I talk about is if you really want to grow sales, you need to increase your velocity. How can you get more done, more throughput done? And the worst um, time waste is speaking to, to the wrong people and wasting your time. And that's simply because we're not asking the question, who's involved in the buying decision, who makes the decisions, and so forth. And I, I would think the other one is learn to shut up. <laughs> yeah. That, that's, um, kind of, that's almost a get out of your way. I thought there was like a double entendre there. And get out of your way. <laughs> well, you got, yeah, you got to learn to shut up because they have to do the talking. That's why God gave us two ears and one mouth. We heard that statement before. So, um, you know, it, I've proven to salespeople and sales execs and leaders, it's not so much what you say. It's the answers you give to what people, other people are saying. You know, so forget about your point of view. They don't care about it. They're only interested in their point of view. We are, we are, <laughs> the royal we, are speaking to Ron Carr and roncar.com. You can go there. Lead seller, get out of the way. The website is also... HTTP, uh, leadsellergetoutofthewaycom You can go there and check out the book. As a matter of fact, you're giving away three chapters. Download right. three chapters, get them enticed. You're going to want to buy this book because it's fabulous and it's easy to read. Uh, simple, easy strategies to implement today. So if you want to go out there today and start and start becoming a leader in sales, that's the way to do it. Yeah, I love it. Um, <laughs> asking good questions, treating people like their you know their time is valuable. The delta of opportunity, explain that. So, um, like I said, many people are trying to compete and not create. So if I find out where you're trying to go, then I find out where you are, this gap becomes a delta of opportunity. But if I just try and find out where you are right now and I'm boring you, I'll never find out where you want to go because you're shutting down on me. So you got to first find out where they want to go, where they are, and then you work this gap to provide value as to why they should buy from you versus another vendor. That's the delta of opportunity. And I love the, the little story about the native story about um, seeing things from another person's perspective and actually walking behind them to see the view that they're looking at. Cause right. it, it's very um, dramatic in, in some ways, but, but it puts the point 
just so beautifully. So um, we all listen by making assumptions because we're not listening, we're hearing. So if someone says something, we immediately try to fit into the world as to how we see it. So I, <laughs> I share this story all the time. My last name is Carr, K-A-R-R. And I'll go to, I fly a lot. You know, I stay in hotels, restaurants. I'll go, hi, my name's Carr. You have a reservation, K-A-R-R. And 99% of the time, Frankie, they're looking at it. And these are high-level trained people because I'm at the higher level of frequent flyer status. I'm sorry, I don't see your reservation. I'm going, uh, are you looking on the C? They're going, yeah. I said, but I just spelled it for you, K-A-R-R. It's because they're looking at it as to how they think my name should be spelled. As opposed to how I am spelling it. That's what I mean by the point of view. I like it. I don't think we touched on an internal building internal alliance. And I think that's super important, especially for sales. But a lot of people see the sales guy. Oh, that's the sales guy. We don't like him. He makes a lot of money. Um, you know, he's out there schmoozing. He's got the nice car. He's got the great suits. He's got, or she, you know, I shouldn't make that assumption. Um, I've been in that position before. So, so having a, internal alliances is as important as having external alliances because once you go and make that sale and you make those promises based upon what you know your company can do, people, other people have to now deliver. And so your reputation is basically on the line for, because of all these other people who may or may not implement the things that you need them to sure. do. So I'm on annual retainers with some companies helping them transform the high-performing sales cultures. And I'm bringing together the ops and the salespeople together. And invariably, there's always a, a, a divide. You take a hunter sales rep, and as a matter of fact, we just posted on LinkedIn today a, um, a perceived letter that I created from a hunter to management <laughs> as to what, what that creature is about and how to manage them. But a hunter is, made to, is hired to be a disruptor, Okay. They're hired to go out, break down doors, and deal with a lot of rejection. And they'll make promises to customers, and the last thing that they want to do is not come through on those promises. So they come in with the same attitude to hunting into a VP of engineering says, I need this developed in a day. Well, that VP of engineering has other priorities, not just that one, but because the way they come across, there's like friction happening right now. And when I tell the hunters, even farmers, treat the internal people like your customers. Find out what they're working on how you can help them become successful because if they see that you're there for their success, they'll help you. Mm -hmm. And I learned this at an early age because early on in my sales career, we were selling computerized time systems that the traders used, you know, to um, stamp their trades before computers took over so that they can make sure that the trades done at the exact same time and they, uh, you know, obeyed the SEC laws. So I wanted a key account. They sold us to Sears and Lehman American Express, 200 units. They gave me the account after the sale was done. They already replaced all the units because they're all breaking. Have fun. Well, I go to the to the VP of operations there, and he just wanted to throw me out of his 102nd floor window. He was so upset. I go back to my service manager, and I already knew he replaced all the motors. I already knew he didn't want to talk to me, and I already knew he was wasting his repair people's time on this location. So I went in, and I said, Carl, I need to talk to you. He goes, is this about so-and-so? I said, yes. But I said, Carl, just understand, I know you've already replaced all those units, okay? I know this is dragging on your P&L. I want to work with you so you don't have this problem anymore. We get a satisfied customer, and we can all move forward. And he goes, okay, what do you need? I said, well, are we take, keeping track of serial numbers? He goes, no. I said, maybe that's what we need to do because maybe it's not all the units broken. Maybe it's just a few of them. 
but I can convince the customer to keep a, a tab at their at the desk, would you have your servicemen just stop by and just jot down the serial numbers? And he was reluctant, but he eventually did. We found there was only 20% of the units that were breaking. Brought it back to the customer. They agreed to buy some spares. Problem was solved. He was happier. But I wouldn't have gotten him to help me if I didn't acknowledge what he did already, what he was trying to achieve, and to prove to him that I was not just there for myself. I was there to help both him and I. That's what I mean. Treat them like customers because they don't have to help you. Now, on the opposite side of that, I'm going, okay, you've, uh, you've told your customer, these only break 20% of the time. So if you buy some spares, you'll always be able to, you know, put them in right away and not, not have a disruption of business. And he's, and, and you run the risk, but you didn't because the guy knew that you were working hard to help him of this guy, but you just want me to buy more stuff. No, so that's a good point. So what happened was, first of all, he, he was on the impression they're all breaking. So when I gave him the data, I said, look, it's 20%. You don't want to know what? 20% is still high. My goal is to get it down to 10%. So 10% of 200 is 20. But here's the deal. Without four-hour response time, 10% is okay. And normal companies can deal with that. But you can't because you can't wait a second because you can't have a trade be out of whack. So to make sure that you're protected, we'll get it down to 10%. Buy 20 spares. This way, if something breaks, your people can change it immediately. You have no downtime. We'll be there within four hours, and you'll have that running inventory. And he bought it. He was happy because all he wanted was a solution. Yeah. He didn't look at me as trying to sell more stuff. Well, I did say that, but he eventually understood it. Yeah. And guess what happened? A year later, he bought a 1,000 more. And that's that, – yeah, I mean, that's relationships, though, isn't it? I mean, it's partly relationship and partly you, you, you know, following through on what you said. And, and I think that's a big thing is that people follow through, have, take responsibility for their actions and for what their mouth comes out of their mouth. And, and if you can do that, then, then people say, you know what? He's a stand-up guy. I'm going to do But this. I wouldn't have succeeded if I didn't rally my internal troops to support exactly. me and get them on my side. Exactly. Not so, because they had to, but because they wanted to. Right. And that's a huge, a huge, huge thing that you have to understand. Is, is that internal alliance and how much they will mean to you in the future of, of the business. And really, I mean, you all, all of you, it's teamwork. I mean, it really is a team. It takes a team to raise a dream as, you know, Charmaine will say, and it does, it really does. So, you know, you got a smarty pants here, but everybody has to rally around. It's a team sport. <laughs> the team sport. Exactly. I love it. No lone wolf. He's like, you say right at the beginning of the book. And I remember saying in my book, you know what? You, the lone wolf doesn't operate anymore. Doesn't no, work that way. No, you, you need you need other even referrals, people to get you into new opportunities. We need others. You know, my uh, brother-in-law was um had, had a boutique law firm doing very well, and then one time he just closed it up when I started my business and went to become a partner in a bigger firm. He said, "Why did you do that?" He said, "I can only make so much money to myself. I can make a lot of money through the efforts of others." And I said, "Wow, that's an interesting concept." Well, in sales is the same thing. We can only make so much money through our own efforts, but if we get alliances, internal and external, to help us, we can make a heck of a lot more money because they're helping us. You know, it's um, a number of years ago on one of my coaching sites. I had it, it was you know about positive outcomes. What do people want? All they want is a positive outcome. They just want somebody to solve the problem, a strategic outcome, and and be happy. That's it. Solve my problem. I'm happy. And also to be listened to. And to they, be listened to. They want to be heard. They definitely want to be heard. So 
and that comes with, you know, validation. People really want to be validated. I, th- I think more times than not, when, when it comes to, um, I, I, you know, I always say this, when people get hurt on the job and, and, and there's a, I can't remember the name of them now, but they always want to say, no, no, you go back to work. We're not going to pay you. Or people in the hospital have to wait for 10 hours. People can forgive a whole lot of things if you just validate. You know what? I understand you're waiting a long time and I'm really sorry for that, but we've only got one doctor here right now and we're doing the very best we can. And I know that your child is hurting and I want to get them in. If you did that, instead of saying, you know what, get back a hundred people here. They all want to see the doctor, go sit down. You know, it's such a different flavor um, and interpretation that they have a change of perspective when you do that. It is. I, I teach conflict resolution and, and I've studied this. You go back to, let's say, um, the Exxon Valdez, the big tanker in the 80s that, you know, had an accident off Alaska and all the oil was dropping. Exxon, for the first few weeks, refused to acknowledge that it was their problem. So what's everybody doing? They're cutting up the Exxon credit cards. Yeah. Three months later, they finally took responsibility. How much business would they have saved if they, if they, um, if they, if they uh, owned up to it immediately? The two best examples of that were President Kennedy Bain Pigs and the Tylenol scandal in the 80s. When the Bay of Pigs happened, Kennedy went on TV, a new medium. He sees the moment. He says, the buck stops here. I'm the leader. I take responsibility. When you do that, what happens is your competitor is all going to try and put out that fake news and, and why it happened. But if you take ownership immediately, you eliminate that. Tylenol, the drug of choice, the drug of safety, all of a sudden was tampered with and people started dying. They didn't wait. They immediately took the product off the shelves and they said, hey, look, we said this is safe. It's not safe right now. We didn't do it, but we got to fix it. When it's back on the shelves, you know it's going to be safe. So yeah. for the next three months, they lost some business. But when it came back, they got back the number one market share. So what it proves is if there's something going wrong, like a misdelivery, own up to it. You don't necessarily have to take responsibility because you don't want to be sued, but you have to acknowledge someone's pain. And you got to say, hey, I understand this is setting you back. I'm sorry about it. Let's work a path forward of how we can help you get over this so that you can get what you need to keep your supply chain going. That's what they want. They want to be acknowledged. I I love that. And, you know, in in coaching, we talk about responsibility versus blame. And you get your power back. Seems counterintuitive, but you do get your power back when you are the first one to say, you know what, I'm sorry I screwed up. Yeah. Or or, or, if you don't even want to admit you're screwed up, I'm sorry that you're going through this. You're acknowledging the pain. Yeah, acknowledging the pain and the validation. And that's like, that's one of the most important things that we can do. Again, lead seller, get out of the way, Mr. Ron Carr. He has so many wonderful things to tell and great stories, amazing stories, 35 plus years in the biz. You know, what can I say? Um, one, I would imagine that one of the things that helped you was your ability to speak well. Why don't you talk to us about how you learned to speak well? Well, um, I can't say that was one of my abilities. But it is today, obviously. Today it is. But when I was a young child, I had this disorder, and it it caused me a lot of angst. It was actually um, a a speech impediment that prevented me from pronouncing the letter R. It was called roticism, or as I called it, oticism. And can you imagine having a name Ron Carr when you're (laughs) enunciating the letter R? It was horrible. I, I was mocked by my friends, you know, in, in middle school. And it was just, you know, I went to a couple of speech lessons and it was like worse than going to a dentist and pulling teeth and I decided not to. But eventually the mocking just got to me and I said, okay, what are you going to do different? 
So I committed myself to two years of those speech therapy lessons. I went every week and I was going through the painful exercise of trying to enunciate the letter R. And it got to the point where eventually it, um, it worked and yeah. uh, the mocking stopped. And who knew that on, you know, June 28th and the Philadelphia Grand Ballroom of the Marriott Hotel in 2014, I'd be inducted as the 40th president of the National Speakers Association. <laughs> that certainly wasn't a dream of mine back then because I didn't even think I can speak. So the point that I'm just sharing the story with is that we all have our issues and what, why we think we can't succeed or do something to someone else. And you can. All it takes is a commitment to say you want to do something different. Take it one step at a time. But go with the belief that if you're going to be committed to it, things will improve and get to where you want to be. But it all starts and ends with each one of us. Yeah. Change is just a thought away, right? Yes. My guest, Mr. Ron Carr, K-A-R-R. Don't forget yeah, that one. Right. <laughs> Thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank you so this, much. It was a pleasure. This has been Mission Unstoppable. I will see you guys here on Thursday for Frankie Sense and more. Hopefully, if not, I'll see you next week for Mission Unstoppable again. Take care, everybody. I'm going to stop the streaming. See, it's all just so... <laughs> we're going we're gonna to stop live stream. We'll see you soon. Bye. Yeah,